Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello there, Glenn. Hello, Seb. How you doing, man? Great. Well, um, before we introduce our guest, why don't you orient everyone to social media platforms and ways to contact us? Okay, of course. So if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And if you have ideas or suggestions or you want information on training that we offer, it's podcast at glennhines.com. Excellent. And as always, rates and reviews are welcomed and ideas. We keep getting some really good ideas from people from all over on uh, future episodes. And we always talk about them and kind of brainstorm how those would work. So please keep those coming. Well, we will uh, proceed onward now to welcome our friend and colleague for a discussion about the role of motivational interviewing in weight management services. But before we get into the specific topic, we'll welcome Claire Lane. Hello, Claire. Hi, Seb. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for inviting me. So, Claire, why don't you get us rolling like we often have our guests do? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing these days, uh, but also your journey into uh, your early MI story. Okay, so currently I am working as a clinical psychologist for Swansea Bay University Health Board and I'm working in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. But just immediately prior to me taking that role, I spent about six, seven years working within weight management services. So a bit of a step across, but obviously weight management is still quite important to that role that I've got now. In terms of how I came to MI, I mean, this is quite a good story, really. I came to MI as a non-practitioner I was a researcher undertaking a doctoral study at the Wales College of Medicine. And my background was actually in linguistics. My first degree is actually in linguistics. And so for those people who aren't quite clear on what that is, my interest was in how and why people use language in the way that they do. And one of the things that I was interested in was how language is used within healthcare contexts. So I applied for a studentship that I saw in a local newspaper. And this studentship was to work alongside a guy I'd never heard of before called Stephen Rolnick who was offering a a studentship for somebody to come and work in the Department of General Practice on whatever they fancied. So I thought I'd better Google this guy. And that was the first time that I came across motivational interviewing. And I thought, wow, this is this is interesting. This isn't your average kind of medical discourse that you tend to see. And I'm really interested in this. And so my PhD study actually involved myself and also one of my colleagues, Michelle Hughes-Thomas, was highly involved in this, developing a measure of practitioner skill in MI within healthcare settings. And this was particularly a training instrument. So we were looking to try and pick up differences before and after training in MI. Um, it's an instrument called the Becky. Some of you might have come across it. And I kind of extended that into looking at different types of MI training and whether there was any difference in skill acquisition levels at the end of that. 
And then I kind of went native after that because I just got really, really interested in what makes people change and what helps people change. And I've been very privileged to work alongside some clinical psychologists in a cardiac rehabilitation setting. And I wanted some of that. It wasn't enough for me to be researching about people. Although, you know, don't get me wrong, I loved doing MI-based research. It was absolutely fascinating and I loved it, but it wasn't quite enough for me anymore. So then I, I basically converted my linguistics degree to a psychology degree and I went off and I did clinical psychology training and here I am. So I guess now my relationship with MI is less about understanding how it works um, and more about sharing skills with my colleagues and also practicing it myself. Dedication immediately comes to mind, Claire, about what you're describing, because it sounds, first of all, how passionate you were about the linguistics and, you know, the, the reward that that offered you. But then to discover something even more interesting for yourself in motivation interviewing and the, the time and effort that you put in to convert from one area of speciality to this other area of speciality and the hours and the commitment and the time to do, my understanding is a second PhD and become a clinical psychologist. I suppose one of the things to be curious about is what was it about MA that really invited you to make such a commitment? haven't already studied for five, six years in your first journey? God, that's a good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I think it actually helped me to kind of deepen my interest in what goes on for people. And I think, you know, I could see this stuff and I could see that it worked really well. And I guess I felt that I wanted to be one of those people who was out there making a difference. And, you know, I, I was simply interested in that stuff. So don't get me wrong. I mean, my, my discipline is really, really wide. You know, clean psych is amazing because you can basically work from birth to death, um, focusing primarily on mental health, physical health, learning disabilities, forensics. And I, I got to do a bit of all of that as part of my training and I loved it. But actually my passion has always very much been around sort of the, the health field and around kind of health, illness, health behavior change, that sort of stuff. So I guess I always had the passion for that and it just kind of broadened a little bit more. I was already doing training when I was a researcher. So, you know, it's not as if I wouldn't have been training people, but now I actually have the privilege to be able to do training with the teams and my colleagues who I work with and actually kind of be part of their journey and be able to kind of offer them more than just a, a few workshops here and there when I can take annual leave to run them, you know? Dedication, some people might say stupidity, <laughs> self-included sometimes. But yeah, you know, it was something that I really, really wanted to, to do and something that I really wanted to be part of. You used the phrase early in that answer about, am I allowed you or afforded you the possibility of deepening your understanding for what goes on with people. It also seemed like it deepened your deepened and broadened your work to include training and to sort of apply not just MI skills, but other skills with a, with a whole host of, of people who are struggling or searching for answers in, in other realms. Yeah, Sebastian, actually something I've just remembered as well, MI actually helped me to better my research skills as well because during the process of doing things like qualitative interviews for example you know I think having that understanding of MI and and having spent time teaching people listening skills and listening out for what's happening here actually that was that was a real asset when it came to doing things like semi-structured interviews you know you have to be careful not to influence the content too much but actually it helps you to kind of highlight and put things on hooks in your head when people say something that might be interesting so yeah you know it kind of gave back as well 
Well, yeah, I, I can imagine in the context of research and doing these semi-structured interviews and qualitative interviews that it's so, so important as you're hearing what a research participant is telling you that you have the sort of listening ear really, really well attuned, but you're also kind of processing it in somewhat structured areas guided by, of course, the research project. And I suppose there is a parallel there to doing MI clinically. So yeah, it certainly makes sense that that would have enriched your research skills. And I was thinking maybe the that sort of deepening understanding that you described was pretty consistent with our topic for today. And, and as we were meeting before we started the episode, what our plan today anyway is, to, is for you to share a bit of your thinking about weight management that certainly goes deeper than what traditional weight management services are about. So perhaps you can kind of start us off with how you envision uh, helping in the context of weight management services. Perhaps it'd be helpful if I kind of talked about my experiences first coming into that arena because, you know, I kind of saw a job advertised working in a specialist weight management service and I thought, this is great. I get to apply my wonderful psychological skills. I get to use MI, you know, MI will be absolutely great for this stuff. I'm I'm there. And I think I was right, but it wasn't quite what I was envisaging it to, to be. I think in terms of the amount of complexity that I was faced with, I always thought that weight management would be a complex area, but I didn't quite anticipate how complex it would be. And if I can just kind of highlight to you, I moved from a sort of a severe and enduring mental health service, working with clients at the kind of severe end of presenting difficulties. And generally what my caseload would look like if you screened this group for anxiety and depression, you would expect on your basic screening measures, I mean, Generally here in the UK, we tend to use the PHQ-9 to measure low mood and the GAD-7 to measure anxiety. You would kind of expect in those services that you would be seeing numbers at the higher end of those scales. I kind of expected in weight management services that you might get a bit of a mixture in there. What I found in the service that I was working with was that people were experiencing anxiety and depression at a severe level about, I think it worked out something like 70, 80% of the people that we were seeing were experiencing anxiety and depression at those levels. And around 30, I think it was about 35% of those people were expressing some degree of not wanting to be alive or of having suicidal ideation or thoughts of self-harm in some way. Now in severe and enduring mental health I would expect to see that. I didn't quite expect to see that in specialist weight management. So I think when we're thinking about weight management quite often people are thinking about things like diet and exercise behaviors and what changes people can make there. I think from my experience, and MI really does fit very, very well within these services, but certainly from my experience, and I think the experiences of my colleagues working in those settings, quite often the changes that we're looking at are kind of like a layer underneath that. People have got such difficult relationships with food and, you know, quite often people say, oh, well, that person's overweight. Well, it's calories in, calories out, isn't it? You know, what you need to do is you need to reduce the calories in, increase the calories out, and then that will bring the weight under control. But the question that I always have is, yeah, but why is the energy balance tipping in that way? Why is this person taking in more calories than their expending what is it that's actually driving that behavior in the first place even just listening to you i know myself that if push had come to shove that i would if somebody said to me what is weight management my instinct would have said eat less exercise more simple <laughs> and what you're saying is your experience and, and really helpful for me and anyone else listening is coming at this from this perspective which is saying yes yeah, that's that's a very simplistic 
way of understanding this and perhaps not a very useful or helpful way of being able to support people with a weight problem. That the weight, the presentation itself is an expression of something else that we, we need to be interested in. The passion that you have each time you talk about what it is you do, you know, just the enthusiasm that arises in you, that just, it sounds like you, the love for whatever it is you put your mind to, just is that you became curious, you know, what, what is, what's going on here? You know, in the same way as your, your search for understanding linguistics, it's like, what's this? What's this, what's this person trying to communicate and what is it we need to understand in a way that then would be helpful for them? And you said that motivation interviewing really blended well into that world. What is it that MI aided you to do in that search for understanding where there was something behind the weight that needed to be understood? What I would say is that generally a lot of my interventions tend to be MI heavy at the start of them. And they, they possibly kind of decrease with me sort of holding an MI style while practicing perhaps um, a different kind of therapy or intervention later on. But for me, MI is absolutely fundamental in building a safe and trusting relationship with the person that you are working with. Just to give you an example, I mean, I'm thinking about my most recent um, position where I was working in weight management. You know, I was working with a medic who, bless him, had a real interest in this area and was really passionate about trying to help patients. And, you know, he could do amazing things with diabetes medications that would impact weight in an absolutely amazing way. And he was able to say, you know, have a good chat with our dietitian. We can think about some swaps that you can make here and we can monitor what's going on with your weight. And the first time that I sat in his clinic, he he said that it was it was an absolute eye opener for him because he would start with, well, tell me what's been going on with your weight. What's what's been going on there? And my question would always be, so why don't you tell us about what's led up to you having an appointment with us here today? And quite often people say, well, how far back do you want me to go? And I go, just start where it makes sense. And using those really fundamental reflective listening skills to make people feel understood. And the amount of times when people say, you know, I've had people for years and years and years telling me that I need to do something about my weight. Nobody has ever asked me why I put the weight on in the first place. I I guess what MI is really good for is those kind of really wide open questions and also setting up that kind of really sort of no matter what you say to me, I'm not going to judge you. Even, Even if I know that what you're telling me can't be clinically accurate because, you you know, weight is a very, very shaming thing. It's a very stigmatizing thing if you're somebody who's got a larger body size than what is considered to be average, um, particularly if you're female. It can be shaming and it can be stigmatizing for people. People have experienced bullying. Um, people basically experience abuse that is, for the most part, socially accepted because of their body size, you know? It's seen as acceptable if you get a politician on um, national radio in the morning saying, well, we're thinking of charging extra bus fare for people who are a certain weight because obviously the bus is burning more fuel because of those people. (laughs) For goodness sake, there's a person at the end of this. So, you know, if somebody's sitting there and they're saying, you know, at the end of the day, I don't eat anything. I eat a few lettuce leaves on a day and that's all I eat. And we can see that their weight is increasing and we know that this cannot be the case. There's no point in me arguing about that because actually what that's telling me is that somebody isn't feeling safe and they think that they're going to be judged by me if they tell me what's actually going on there. And so, you know, it's it's really important for me to hold that kind of non-judgmental stance and to just be where somebody's at and just accept them for who they are and what they've been through and you know if their experience is that no matter what I try to do I can't get on top of managing this weight 
I believe them because they wouldn't be sat there in my clinic if that wasn't the case. So I think that MI is fabulous in helping you to build that strong relationship and build that trust in relationship and also helping people to recognize the strengths that they have. If you're somebody who's scoring a, a PHQ-9 score in the 20s and actually you've managed to hold down a job, successfully raise a family, support everybody around you anytime that they need help, you are one really resilient person and I see MI as something fundamental in helping people to recognize the strengths that they do have because quite often when they kind of come and see me they think that they're, they're not capable of anything because they've never managed to get their weight under control. Wow so many really important nuggets there that you're sharing with us Claire and Am I, I guess one of the, one of the key things is you started us with the very common question that someone going to weight management service would hear as a first question, you know, tell us about your weight, you know, or some, some weight related question. It makes sense. It's a weight management service. And you're saying, or suggesting that if you start with a question, one of these open questions that of course are, are very common in MI these open questions about them as a human being, as a person that, you know, eventually, of course, you're going to get to the issue of their weight, but it doesn't need to start in that very problem centric manner. And in fact, the care that you deliver and, and really the sort of comfort level of support that the other person would experience is much different if you start with seeing them as a person and wanting to hear their story that, may not have anything to do with weight, just as a young kid growing up somewhere, or their experiences in school or, or whatever it might've been. And so am I really kind of has guided you in, into seeing it, Well, certainly not judging somebody and trying to search, search for their strengths, but starting with this really open question of what was it like to come in today or what brings you in today? How do you feel about being here today is a question that I quite often ask. And, you know, people say, usually say, um, I'm feeling really optimistic or they, they more often would say, I'm actually feeling pretty terrified. I'm feeling pretty terrified about having this conversation and where things might go. Some people just sit and burst into tears when I ask them that question. And some of that is because nobody has ever really asked them what it's like to, to be in their shoes. But also, this is such a massive thing for them. You know, it's emotional. People don't gain like 100 kilograms overnight. It's something that takes months and years to get to that point, you know, and it can feel it can feel overwhelming for people. And so, you know, just kind of trying to offer an environment that feels welcoming and accepting. I think that at least my MI skills really offer me a, a great means of being able to do that with the people that I see. It's very moving what you're describing there, Claire, that, you know, people coming in and saying, no one has ever asked me that before, or this is the first time I have felt heard, or just emoting, just a, a sense of almost like tears of, of release, just going, at last, at last, thank goodness, it's, it's almost like a relief that somebody's there who, who's trying to understand, may not initially, they may not say, because you said that, I now feel safe with you. But it sounds like that is in itself is potentially just an invitation for them to try something different with you because you have done something different with them first. And I think that's the one thing that keeps coming up with, with our guests is that when we're learning MI, the, the thing that seems to be so significant is that very often it, it's, it's the practitioner that does something, for, something different first that invites and supports the client be able to be different with them. And it sounds like, again, your willingness just to open that conversation up and explore you know, what brings you here today. So in many ways, what you're describing is that the, the first of the four processes in motivation, the engaging process. And it sounds like what, from what you said earlier on is that at the beginning of your intervention, that you're using MI to really 
develop that engaging process? And is it then that as you go across the processes that your MA intervention softens and other interventions may be brought in to enhance or to uh, work alongside of what it is you're trying to achieve? I'd say so. And I'd, I'd say that I kind of, once I've got a good level of engagement with somebody, and it sounds awful to say this, but actually once you've got that really good engagement and that good relationship in something that's kind of really anti-MI at that point, but, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to the engagement phase and sometimes I might end up spending a lot of time there. Other times, you know, it might be quite quick, but I allow time for that. And as a clinical psychologist, you're kind of groomed in a particular way to, you know, first you do your assessment and then you do your formulation and then you do your intervention and then you do your evaluation. So what I do is I say, yeah, I'm seeing them for assessment. What I actually mean is I'm seeing somebody for engagement. I'm focusing on building that relationship. And I know that I'm going to find out information that I need to find out if I just give that person respect and space. And then as we've got that, we kind of then move into the kind of the, the focusing stage, if you like. And, you know, because I'm a psychologist, um, I work on using formulation or case conceptualization to try and understand how somebody's weight has become a problem for them in some way. You know, there is a problem there because they wouldn't be coming to see me if there wasn't. So just using what we've found out during that engagement phase to try and make some sense of what seems to be going on for that person. And I would say that that's kind of focusing because at that point we're kind of like, well, you know, there's this and there's this and there's this. Is there anything that we've missed? Is there anything that seems like it's more important to focus on than any of these other things? And then that's when we kind of move into evoking. And I, I think one of the things that's quite nice about MI as a practitioner is actually to an extent, the heat is off of me because I know that I can't make this person change. I could use all kinds of psycho trickery that I've got up my sleeves, but at the end of the day, the person's going to get wise to it. And, you know, they need to be in the driving seat. As I kind of say to them, you know, I guess I'm a bit like a co-driver in a rally car because you're the one who's got control of the steering wheel, the brakes, and you're the one who's in control of what direction we actually go in. I'm the one who kind of sits back here with my map and I can say, you know, um, I can read out coordinates to you and I can suggest we might want to go this way rather than this way. But actually, at the end of the day, you're the one who's in charge of this process. I kind of at that point, I guess I draw out and we plan what it is that we're going to do. And I think because of um, obviously the job that I do, it's kind of like, well, what kind of an intervention might we start to look at and which ones would you feel comfortable with? I think what I probably would say is that most interventions that I deliver are kind of coloured by MI in some way. So I might deliver something like a cognitive behavioural intervention or an acceptance and commitment therapy-based intervention. But it's always got a little bit of a flavour of MI about it. And, you know, I mean, I also do trauma processing stuff. So I use um, quite a bit of eye movement desensitisation and reprogramming. I think that's what EMDR stands for. I hope that's what it stands for. And whereas when I'm actually doing the actual processing, I probably, you know, I can't use any MI there. What I've always got when I'm doing my kind of my my building up to that is a lot of MI skill and also empathizing with people when we get to the end of a session you know that must have been really tough what you went through there it's taken some real grit for you to get through that so it kind of I guess it, it flows through all the different phases of work that I might do with somebody yeah you've nicely described there that there's how there's certain elements of MI that don't really go away. I mean, I suppose they could, but if people are curious about the boundaries of MI and when do you stop doing MI and start doing something like ACT or EMDR, there are certain pieces that you could have run through all of them 
So for instance, the elements of the MI spirit, having an empathic quality to the interaction, that doesn't need to end if you're doing any of these other approaches. Using reflective listening skills certainly would be applicable when doing some of these other approaches, even if what you're doing is say, doing some cognitive restructuring exercise within a CBT intervention. It's great to hear you describe it that way, both in terms of a weight management context, but really anyone who's doing some of these other kind of therapies. One thing that I was interested to hear a little bit more about, I think, was the, the focusing part. So you, you laid out the four processes, engaging, focusing, evoking, and planning. With focusing, I, I, I would imagine it's a place that providers might already know or think they know, or at least have an idea of a rationale for why a person should focus on particular areas. And MI, I imagine you would agree, provides a really nice way of maintaining the partnership in the relationship there, where you're inviting the person to influence the focus greatly if that makes sense. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you bring in that MI-ness to a, a conversation where you might have some answers already for them. Yeah. So actually, it's it's quite interesting because I'm not sure if anybody else does this. Um, this, this might be a, a clarism that I'm going to share, but quite often in motivational interviewing interventions, um, we use an agenda setting chart to actually kind of map out, well, you know, these are some of the things that people might come and talk about um, in this particular clinical scenario. And so just thinking about where I work at the moment in cardiac, you know, we might have something like, you know, some people might want to talk about diet, some people might want to talk about alcohol or smoking, and then we've got these empty bubbles over here. Basically, I kind of use an agenda setting chart in reverse. So I kind of, as we're, as we're kind of going through that process of engaging and finding out more about this person's story and what's actually brought them to seek help for their weight at this point, what I kind of do is in my head, I'm grouping those things into different themes that kind of sit together. So to give you an example, at the end of what we call the assessment phase, I'm kind of grouping those things into themes to to make it, I guess, digestible for the person that I'm working with. And we might end up with, you know, I usually have a great big circle in the middle saying, what's contributing to my difficulties with weight or words to that effect. And then around the outside, we might have, I really struggle with difficult emotions. I struggle to prioritize myself. I think other people are often more important than me. I've got lots of commitments. I've got a busy life. I really struggle financially and I have to work a lot. There's a lot of stressful things that have happened in my life so far and they're continuing to happen to me. You know, there could be a whole load of different things. And so I kind of end up with this bubble diagram. And then that's when I kind of say to people, you know, does that look like it kind of covers it? Is that kind of how your weight has ended up where it is? Are there any of these that I need to get rid of or that I've misunderstood? Are there any that aren't on there or don't feel like they've been tapped by what's on there that need to be on there and so we're kind of working on this all together and then I say right if we were going to start to do something to to help you with your weight in some way looking at this where would it make most sense for you to start You know, as a practitioner, that's a difficult position to to be in because usually I can, within that, pinpoint the one or two things that are really, really driving this this kind of, um, this disharmony in eating behavior, you know, the calories in, calories out thing. But it's really, really important to allow the person to, to decide actually where they want to start and what's the right starting point for them. Because actually, if I try and shove them into something that they're not ready to face at the moment, that they're, they're not ready to engage with, or, you know, it just feels too terrifying for them at the moment, that would just be absolutely futile. And it would be disrespectful, frankly, 
I'm generally working with very, very resilient people who've lived through absolutely horrendous challenges in their life and weight is a horrendous challenge in their life and actually if they want to start over here even though I'm thinking oh you know I think we're going to go round and round in circles you know I'll let them go round and round in circles if the need be because they need to decide that they need to be over here if that's where they need to be and actually if you're making progress over here maybe it might make some of those things feel a lot easier. It's interesting because I think in MI we talk a lot about the writing reflex and, you know, I'll put my hand up. I've got a writing reflex, but I have to keep it down there somewhere. I just have to be aware of it and I have to just ride it, even though everything in my head is thinking, no, 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 it's this, it's this, you know, this is going to be a disaster. I've just got to sit there and be calm and sit with that because it's so important for that person to take charge of how they manage things from here. They've been following other people's plans for years and they've not worked. There's so much in that, Claire, that, you know, as, as you were describing it, it sounds like the image that you created was that at the centre of your understanding or the centre of your visualisation of what it is they're presenting with is this notion of this thing called weight. And in many ways it's recognising weight represents the answer to all of these things, all these other bubbles on the outside of this image. Given of all of these other contributory factors to this thing called your weight, what would be a good place for you to start? And just that autonomy support, and you're, you're saying there that resisting your instinct to go, you should really start over here, or I have a fantastic idea, why didn't you do this? Or this would be the shortest, quickest route for you. Not suppressing it, but you're recognizing it and then choosing not to articulate it and to see what happens. And again, it sounds like so much of what it is you're endeavoring to do is to create a space where this person's probably expecting you to go, do you know what you should do? And then when you don't do that, they can't stay the same. They, they don't know the line. If we think of it as a script, if you don't ask that question, they have to come up with a new answer because they, they're not used to being asked. Well, what do you think will work? And actually, sometimes people say, what I want you to do is just tell me what I need to do. Mm. Because actually, I don't have any space for all of this. I just, I just need you to tell me what to do. Mm. And I don't do it. <laughs> I got caught by that one um, quite a few times early on in the game. And I don't do it. And I guess there's a lot of people out there going, really? Yeah. And, it's, and, and I imagine not just in weight management. I think a lot of people will identify with clients or service users coming in going, look, go on, you just tell me what to do. What is it you normally do instead of telling them? How do you respond to that from an MA position? I guess it would depend on the specific person. But just thinking of times when I've done that before, sometimes I think about what it is that the person is trying to say when they're saying, you know, I, I just want you to, to give me a simple solution. I want you to just tell me what to do and I go off and do it and that's the end of it. What does that mean? And quite often I'll make a reflection of, you know, I'm, I'm pitching my best hypothesis there about what that means. And I might say something like, this has been a really long and hard journey for you and it just feels so overwhelming to have to face any of this stuff right now. And usually I will get back something like, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I'm feeling. And I say, okay, so one of the things you'd like me to do is to tell you what to do, because actually we want to make this feel less overwhelming for you. And I know that actually that's not going to be helpful for you because at the end of the day, you are the one who's the expert in you and in your life. And I don't live your life. But what I really would like to do is to try and make this feel less overwhelming in some way. So I wonder if you've got any ideas about how we might make this feel less overwhelming. What would feel less overwhelming than what it is that we're looking at right now? And I take it from there. That's just an example. And another, another example might be you've, you've experienced 
a lot of different weight management interventions before and there's always been a plan for you to take away and it's always seemed a lot more certain and actually having something that feels more certain feels a lot better for you so you know I like I said it's it's kind of hard to to do it because I'm not there but I'm just thinking about things that I've said when I've been put in that situation and interestingly, a lot of my MI training with health professionals, um, when they say, oh, yeah, you know, I've done an MI workshop before. Oh, how did you get on with it? Well, you know, I did really well. And then I kind of lost it by the by because, you know, I'd ask these wide open questions and then patients would say, oh, I don't know. And what do I do with that? Well, I just jump straight in with something else. So I've, I've had to learn not to just jump in because, you know, it would be so easy for me to say, well, what I think you need to do is this, 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 bish, bash, bosh, all done. But I know that's not going to be effective. Yeah. You're providing wonderful examples of, again, these like the non-calories in, calories out elements of weight management, the emotional burden that people will come into these meetings with. Even just how to respond to that question of what do you, you know, just tell me what to do, uh, just highlighting how a person might be feeling overwhelmed with everything that they're facing. With that focusing discussion, highlighting a lot of the elements about the relationship with food as opposed to what to do or not do. So I, I, I hope all of that kind of deepened material there is helpful for people to understand this kind of work for people that do this kind of work or not. And I, I suppose one thing that everybody listening to this podcast, regardless of their profession, everyone has a relationship with food at some level ourselves, right? So maybe this is something that can be eye-opening for them in that way too. I'm curious about times where you actually do give feedback. You may not just tell someone what to do completely, but there may be opportunities where you give someone feedback about how they might change in this context. And also wondering when and if you do get to some more behaviorally focused parts of the conversation where it might be a bit about a particular style of eating or physical activity or whatever it might be like do you get to those points and and if you do how do you get there yes i do and usually i would be at that point working in conjunction with one of my dietetic colleagues um when it comes to that because obviously they know a lot more about nutrition than i do you know when we've kind of reached that point when it's like actually you know what i'm gonna start making some changes to what i do I think one of the things that I find very helpful um, using MI as a skill to draw on is the idea of helping people to draw on their past experiences of trying to lose weight and getting them to evaluate them for themselves. I, I will kind of put myself out there and say, you know, I'm an absolute very low calorie diet hater. I've been on several of them in my life and I wish I'd never gone anywhere near them. And interestingly, most people who've approached our services in over the course of their life have managed to probably lose collectively more weight than they weigh currently. What we know about a lot of those approaches is that they're highly effective of getting a chunk of weight off in the short term, but they're rarely a good method to use over the long term. So what I will generally do, because quite often people go with what's familiar, they go with what they perceive has worked for them because they went on to X diet and they managed to lose all this weight and they felt great and they felt healthy. But then, you know, the problem was their willpower. I might do a little bit of kind of education work around the concept of willpower uh, along the lines of, you know, if you feel like you're gritting on and you're, you're using all your fingernails and your teeth to kind of cling on to what you're doing it's probably not the change for you you know but what I'll do is I'll ask people to draw on their past experience and say you know how did that work out for you yeah it was great for this and it was great for that how did it work out for you over the long term how able were you to kind of keep that going over the long term what were the things that stood in the way so if you were going to do this again what changes would you need to put in place that are slightly different from what you did that time to make it feel less like you're clinging on with your fingernails and your, your teeth 
to being able to do this. I guess I'm quite often drawing out from people. You know, I'm kind of quite often coming from a a position of, you know, we know what's not going to work for these people. Um, But ultimately, if they're they're absolutely hung up and sure that they're going to do it again, there's very little that I can do to kind of stop them. So I don't try. I guess what I do with my MI skills is I try to actually draw out from them, you know, what might work. And actually, if we think back over that experience, why didn't it work out that time? And what would need to be different this time? What could help you feel more confident to keep that going? Quite often, I think something that people in weight management services will struggle with is the idea that actually you don't have to be really, really harsh on yourself to to lose weight. It doesn't need to be quick. Whoever came up with this formula of two pounds a week is a good weight loss. You know, actually you're having to make quite drastic changes to what you're doing to achieve that over a long term. Just helping people to entertain the idea that perhaps it doesn't need to be quick, it doesn't need to be fast, it needs to be maintainable and thinking about, you know, what has worked well in the past, but what would need to be different this time? How could we make it work and how could we make it maintainable? So really offering quite a broad framework for this to to work, we know something that's going to be long term and manageable for you. What will make this long-term and manageable for you? And then you go back into this curiosity without judgment. And it sounds like what it is you're endeavoring to do is you're, you're really trying to care people into change. You're really you're going and just sitting alongside of them going, you know, how did you get here? And on this journey to here, what did you discover? And let's just be curious about what it is you discovered and what it is that 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 you may have learned from those previous experiences that will help you this time. But each time it's about them discovering it. It's they that you invite them to go back over and re, maybe not necessarily just discover, maybe it's rediscover what has worked somewhat in the past and what else could be added to it. But again, it sounds like you're asking them, what do you think would add to that rather than going, what you should do, no, instead of doing that the next time, just do this this time. And again, it's, I, I imagine that there's so many times that we again have to sit on your writing reflex when you're given this information or drawing out this information. And I think that's something that listeners will be keen to, to understand is that when you feel like giving, you ask. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I should probably also say that there are times when I raise concerns with a patient that I'm working with. But the way that I do it isn't to say, you know, I don't want you to do this because this is what's going to happen, right? <laughs> That's not going to be helpful for, for them. And actually, it's going to completely batter their self-efficacy as well. I don't want to be doing that. What I might say is, you know, you've, you've come up with some really, really good ideas and I can really see why you think that they're likely to work for you. However, because of the things that we've talked about before, I've got a few concerns that that might not be the best approach for you. But at the end of the day, it's up to you what you decide to do. But would it be okay for me to share some of those concerns with you? I'd say I don't actually think I've ever had anyone say, no, I don't care. I'm going off and doing whatever anyway. And actually, it's really interesting because when patients give me feedback, one of the things that they say that they value most about the work that we've done together tends to be my genuineness and they're like you know you don't beat about the bush you don't tell me what I can and can't do or what I should and shouldn't do but actually you kind of own if if you don't think it's a good idea you'll share it and and I think that that's that's important but again you need to make sure that you've got that really really good relationship between you before you can start saying stuff like that. So what you were describing there, Claire, made me think of a a phrase that we use here in the States, which is usually seen as a positive quality. And but whenever I hear it, I, I kind of cringe. And that is telling it like it is. And when I hear somebody say that, in my mind, I think that means giving people feedback rudely or in an in a overly 
bear, you know, in an overbearing kind of way. And what I, I really appreciated your anecdote there and the example of how people have given you feedback and saying that you're actually pretty direct with them. You've demonstrated a way of being direct, not in a rude way, certainly, but also in a way that supports their autonomy. You know, you explicitly state that, well, here's a piece of feedback that I have for you. you you're aware that a person is free to make their choices once they leave the office with you. And even asking for permission, which again, is something that we try to do a lot in MI. When you give feedback, you ask for permission, which again, kind of acknowledges like, I have an idea that might be interesting for you, but only if you're wanting to hear it. So some really important specific skills there that you're, you're sharing with us and how you give feedback and how you give feedback in a, in a really direct, honest manner that patients have likely uh, appreciated. It's a really interesting one because actually time and again, people say to me, it's my honesty and it's my genuineness. People know when you're not being straight with them. If you're going to give somebody some feedback or share some of your thinking with them, you need to hold that lightly and you need to accept that actually it might not be their way of wanting to do things and you need to be comfortable with that. It's a bit like white knuckle riding, I guess. (laughs) You kind of just have to ride with that. There's this process of weighing people. Weight management services, we weigh people. And, you know, I've always felt very, very ambivalent about that because actually most of the people that we work with have had so many experiences in their life of being weighed and being judged based on what is on that scale and including judging themselves you know if you feel that your body should look a particular way or be a particular size or you should weigh a particular weight and then you're trying to do all these things and it's not working out for you it's a big thing stepping on those scales and it's a big deal stepping on those scales in front of a health professional and who you perceive is going to be making assumptions about how well you're doing based on that weight and it's it's a difficult one because you know obviously we're commissioned to help people to manage their weight and we have to provide evidence of that but it's never something that I felt entirely comfortable with so MI kind of gives me a vehicle to actually discuss that process with people and say you know obviously we do need to weigh people here but we need to think about what's going to feel most comfortable for you I completely accept that this might not feel comfortable for you at all but in terms of trying to make it as comfortable as it can be you know how often would you like us to to weigh you when we weigh you do you want to know what your weight is if things haven't gone well what is it that you're going to need from me at that point if things go absolutely brilliantly what do you need from me at that point just kind of asking those real open questions and you know I've I've been with people where they've stepped on the scales and you know they've they've sobbed they've they've absolutely sobbed their hearts out just seeing that number and what that number means to them and you know just being there with lots and lots of empathy for those people and demonstrating that to them and saying you know I can see this is really really upsetting for you what is it about that that's the most upsetting thing at the moment and what can we do to kind of break you away from that number it's a horrific it's a horrific horrific process you know in in an ideal world I'd like to see weight management services get rid of the scales but realistically that's not going to happen the people who are listening can understand when we were exploring the idea of giving people feedback that, you know, that while you're giving it to them straight, what's consistent throughout our conversation with you today is you're genuinely and authentically caring about people. That when you're giving feedback, it's because you care enough about them and it's in the context of so much else that's going on in the conversation. A bit like your model earlier on, that at the middle is in the middle of this image is. Claire cares, and here's all the ways that she could do it. Which way is she going to do it with you first? And it's just recognizing that there's a, there's a need for us as an organization to use these skills. And there is a potential that these skills can be of benefit to, to you too. 
But if they're not, we'll keep the information for ourselves. But if they can be of benefit, how would you, again, it's just back to that autonomy support. What would you find helpful? That you're not interpreting these results for this client. There's numbers and then you're asking the client, what's this mean to you? And what do you, what is, do you need as a consequence of this? And simply coming alongside of them again. And again, I can understand why people are then willing to hear, you know what, I think maybe this, that with all of that going on, that I, I become more receptive to your ideas if it comes to a point where you're saying, maybe you need to think. My concern is you're, you're bringing your expertise in and going, look, there is information I have. I think you need to take into account whatever, but whatever you do with it is up to you. Again, not autonomy support. So again, I think a lot of people will recognize why people are happy enough to come in and do what it is they do because they feel held by you emotionally, psychologically. It sounds beautiful. I'm conscious of our time, as we often do, we get to a point where we say there's so many more directions we could go in, but time has caught up with us. And at this point in the conversation, we normally ask our guests, what else is happening or what else is going on for you at the minute, Claire, that may or may not be MI related that we could talk to you about for a few minutes? Sure. So I guess one of the uh, one of the sad things that happened as part of lockdown is that I'm a member of a community choir. I kind of joined there with absolutely no interest in singing or no experience of singing at all. Just wanted to get out of the house of a new baby for a bit. <laughs> and, you know, I, I absolutely love singing with my choir, but obviously it's not been possible at all. And so another opportunity that presented itself is that I decided to take some online singing lessons with somebody that I've been on a, a choir trip with. So, yeah, one of the things I'm working on at the moment is that I'm trying to learn more about singing and trying to get better at doing something that I love doing. Which, which is, again, so consistent with everything else that you've said. It's that your dedication to this. I guess that, that what we're going to, I imagine you're going to, you're going to anticipate what we're going to ask you next. You're going to ask me to do it, aren't you? Of course we are. Oh, see, look, I thought Magella Green had the monopoly on the singing thing. <laughs> yes, Magella, Magella invited us to sing. It's nice that it Yeah, and you it, didn't, it did you? No, no, I did not. Seb did. No. Oh, I did not. I dodged no, you, that you, one. Well, you, you, you definitely had a bit of the rap. Uh, I don't think I rapped. I referenced a rap, but I didn't actually rap, uh, which would have uh, mortified my children. Well, I mean, if you're if you're willing, of course, we'd be happy to hear a bar or two. But uh, you know, we'll support your autonomy fully, also. Well, I'll, I'll do it because it scares me. It scares the life out of me. But it's, you know, as a psychologist, I know that it's always a good idea to face up to whatever you're scared of. So. <laughs> Okay, right. I'm going to just move my headphones so that I can actually hear myself. Otherwise, this could be flat as hell. And let's just hope it works out. Sing, sing a song. Make it simple to last your whole life long. Don't worry that it's not good enough. For anyone else to hear, just sing, sing a song. Yay. Wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah, with, yes. with no warm up or anything, you just nice range, you know, that, that's the yeah, limit that's of my... What my. That's what my singing teacher says. He says, I've oh, got good. a great range. I go from B2 up to A5 and he thinks that's amazing. <laughs> and I don't know if you chose that the, those verses purposely, but um, I think if people were to hear back, listen back to the words there, that they, they might apply a bit to the practice of MI. And, and it's not about doing things perfectly. It's about, um, well, it's about having some courage too, which, uh, which we appreciate you spending some time sharing your, your developing skill there, Claire. Claire, if people had questions for you about the material that we've been talking about with regard to weight management 
or if they wanted to sing with you or maybe <laughs> uh, contact your choir instructor, um, would you be open for people to contact you? And if so, how can they reach you? Sure, sure. Okay. And they, they can contact me if they want to. The best way to do that is to get me on my email address, which is clairelane1978 at gmail.com. And what about Twitter? Are you on Twitter or any other social media? And that you would be happy yeah, for people? I'm, to... I'm on Twitter. I've got to be honest. I don't really look at it. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I'm a bit old, and I don't really get Twitter. Um, and yeah, yeah. So it's probably not the best way to get hold of me, to be honest. And just to remind other people then to stay in touch with ourselves, myself and Seb. You can do that on Twitter at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And by email, it's podcast at glenhines.com. Thank you very much, Claire, for coming, talking with us this evening and sharing with us such wonderful insights and wisdom. And perhaps we can clip that song and put it out as a bit of promo. But thank you very much for coming. And Seb, as always, my friend, good to see you. Take care. Good to see you, Glenn. And uh, thank you so much, Claire. Great to see you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.